Okay, so I read about a priceless pearl that was found in a nearly discarded clam that I want to share with you. Barbara Crinsavage insisted that clams are not a regular part of her diet, yet one snowy evening in December, she found herself craving an old recipe and so brought home four dozen quahogs, a clam particularly abundant along the eastern shores of the United States, between Cape Cod and New Jersey. Mr. Cransavage was in the midst of shucking the shellfish for dinner when he discovered one that looked like it was dead. It had a different color to it, and he thought it was diseased. And he thought of, and he, and he was about to discard it, but Mrs. Cransavage took a closer look at it and discovered that it wasn't dead. In fact, inside the live clam was a rare, possibly priceless purple pearl. Experts estimate that roughly one in two million quahog clams contain a gem quality pearl like the one found by the Savages. Due to the great rarity of the find, it has been difficult to even place a value on it, though some have estimated the precious pearl to be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. The word precious is defined as an object, a substance, or a resource of great value, of great value. Something that is not to be wasted or treated carelessly, like the precious pearl in this story or the the precious ring in the Lord of the Rings. Sometimes the word precious is used as a noun, as a term of address for a beloved person. Jesus Christ himself is called the precious cornerstone of God's redemptive plan. He's called the precious cornerstone of God's redemptive plan. Notice Isaiah 28:16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone. A sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. A cornerstone is a stone that forms the base of a corner of a building, joining two walls. Essentially, it is the first part of the foundation that ensures every other part or the rest of the stones in a building align properly. Jesus is that essential piece of our faith that without there is no spiritual building, there is nothing else. The clam in our story was almost discarded because of how it looked or that it appeared to be dead, but inside that clam was something amazing and rare. Likewise, our Lord Jesus Christ is often looked at as something other than what he was. He was discarded as a false prophet and killed on a cross. But little did the murderers know he was no ordinary man. He is God in the flesh, and inside him is a very precious thing, which is everlasting life, which he gives freely to all those who believe. 
Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And previously, in Ephesians chapter 2, we discovered that it was by grace, through faith, that we have been made alive. That because of God's rich mercy and great love for us, he raised us up together with Christ. And that we were created for good works. Paul reminded us that, like the Ephesians, at one time, we were Gentiles in the flesh, hopeless and without God. But as Christians, we are now in Christ and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And because we are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, we have peace with God. We have been reconciled to God through Jesus, and we have access by the Holy Spirit to God, the Father. And because of all that, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Today, as we examine these details and observe the principles and application for our lives, I want you to pay special attention to what the Apostle Paul says, starting with Ephesians 2.19, where he says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice Paul says, now, therefore, meaning at this time, right now, because we are at peace with God, because we are members of God's household, because we are Christians, we are no longer strangers <clears throat> and foreigners, but fellow citizens. It's easy for us in the United States to understand the concept of citizenship because it's been emphasized throughout our lives as citizens of this nation. In the United States, there are essentially a couple of ways you can become a citizen. First, you can become a citizen at birth, which means, <clears throat> excuse me, which means that you have to be born in the United States or in one of its territories or in another possession that is subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. Or you can have a parent who was a citizen at the time of your birth. Or if your parents became citizens before you turned 18. Second, you can become a citizen by naturalization, which is the process by which citizenship is granted to a foreigner after they fulfill congressional requirements, which is very lengthy. But either way, a person who is a citizen of the United States has rights. A person who is a citizen of the United States has rights, regardless of how that person became a citizen, whether born here or not. For example, you as a United States citizen have the right to free speech, the right to religion, the right to assembly, the right to bear arms, and on and on it goes as explained in the Bill of Rights. 
These rights do not typically apply to foreigners or strangers in this country. They actually have no rights, or at least very, very limited rights legally. One commentator stated that such had been the position for the Gentiles in relation to the kingdom of God before the coming of Christ. But now, Christians enjoy all the privileges of God's new people. Notice, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Every single person from all time who has trusted in God is a citizen of the kingdom of God. There are no foreigners. There are only saints. Notice Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that wasn't enough, if, if having access to heaven was not enough, we are members of the household of God. We receive eternal love from the Father just as he gave to his Son, Jesus Christ. Notice Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. I read this article called Our Naturalization Certificate by Pastor Eduardo Davila, which said this, I have here an extremely important document. We all have important documents, a marriage certificate, the title to your car, your birth certificate. This one is my naturalization certificate. My family and I came to the United States, he says, as political assailees. Asylees, is that right? Leaving the remnants of a country ravaged by war and destructive socialism that did not deliver on its promises. When we came, we had passports. We were able to come to the United States, but we were not given full citizenship. We were not protected by the United States. We were not allowed to vote. But all that changed in 2008 when we walked into an office in Miami took a bunch of tests and swore an oath of allegiance to the United States. We were granted full permanent citizenship status. We were fully in. During the whole process, one aspect that struck me was realizing the seriousness of a statement that then President Bush wrote. We are united not by race or culture, but the ideals of democracy, justice, and liberty. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.19 that now you are no longer strangers and foreigners. That you are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Praise God for that. When you come to Christ, you are no longer a stranger or a foreigner. You have the full blessing and protection of the kingdom of Christ. You are no longer undocumented. You no longer need to fret over where you belong or how to survive. At baptism, you renounced your old citizenship and swore allegiance to Jesus. You were given a naturalization certificate. You are now a part of the new humanity. You are no longer strangers and foreigners. Once a citizen 
of a different kingdom. Your ruler were your vices, addictions, and fears. Your ruler was the prince of this world. That is what you left behind when you accepted Jesus and were baptized and chose to submit yourself to Jesus Christ as your new king. God, through his redemptive plan, has built something so incredible, so precious. Notice Ephesians 2.20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The word built is the past tense usage of the word build. We all know that to build something, you put materials or parts together and construct something. And once you are done, you have built something. At the lowest load-bearing part of a building is something called the foundation. Every part of the building is dependent on the foundation. One source said the foundation is the basis or uh, groundwork of anything. The moral foundation of both society and religion. The natural or prepared ground or base on which some structures rest. Paul informs these Ephesians and he reminds us today that the structure of which we are members of, the church, was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and that Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Remember, a cornerstone is the most important part of the foundation. It is what sets the path for everything else. Notice 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. One commentator said that Paul calls Christ himself the foundation here. However, the apostles and prophets consider the foundation as those who are closely associated with Christ in the establishment of the church. They were the witnesses of his resurrection appearances and the preachers of the good news, filled with and guided by the Holy Spirit. They had a unique role in establishing the church. The Christian church seems fractured at times. It seems as though there are thousands of different types of churches and thousands of ideas on what some of the Christian traditions are or should be. There are big churches and small churches. There are denominations as far as you can see. Protestantism, Anglicanism, Presbyterianism, Eastern Orthodox Church, Methodism, Pentecostalism, Lutheranism, Catholics, Baptists, and countless non-denominational churches. Right here on this very street, if you cross 395 and work your way back towards us, there is High Sierra Fellowship, Carson Valley United Methodist Church, St. Gaul's Catholic Church, and then saving the best for last, Shadow Mountain Church. (laughs) Formerly known as First Baptist Church. And that's all in less than one mile. There are a lot of buildings filled with a lot of people who have a lot of ideas. But the sad reality is that not all of them are built on the same foundation. I read about a condo that collapsed due to a faulty foundation. 
in the early hours of June 24, 2021, part of a slab from a high-rise condo building in Surfside, Florida, dropped into the parking garage below. Within minutes, the east wing of the 13-story tower collapsed, killing 98 people in a disaster without modern precedent in the United States. Designed in the late 1970s, the 136-unit tower south was completed in 1981 and marketed as a luxury living apartment. Officials are still investigating why the tower fell. Engineers point to some key decisions during construction that, while legal at the time, compromised the building's foundation and integrity. For instance, the Wall Street Journal report concluded that the original builders skipped waterproofing in areas where salt water could seep into the concrete. The available evidence indicated that they put the building structural slabs on thin columns without the support of beams in some places. They installed too few of the special heavy walls that helped keep the buildings from toppling, engineers say, features that could have limited the extent of the collapse. And they appeared to have put too little concrete over rebar in some places and not enough rebar in others. As design plans and photos of the rubble indicated, tragically, the construction flaws could have been repaired. The report continued. Engineers say some issues would have been fixable had the property's condo board done more extensive repairs sooner. By 1996, the slab started showing cracks and pieces of concrete had fallen off the garage ceiling. Unusual so soon after construction. Workers patched cracks and waterproofed the pool deck, but that too eventually failed. But the condo board failed to act. Roof work began weeks before the collapse, but repairs to the steel reinforced concrete had not yet started. Without the proper foundation, no structure will last. Even the ones that have been around for a long time, they will fall eventually. And the only ones that will last all of the storms, all of the catastrophic events like earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes are the ones that were built to last. The ones who have a perfect cornerstone and a solid foundation. And as it relates to God, as it relates to us as Christians, as it relates to our church, that foundation is Jesus Christ. Notice Ephesians 2.21 in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom? Jesus Christ. The whole building, all believers, is being fitted together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So in this passage, Paul is making it clear that Jesus Christ is the foundation in which all believers fit together and become the whole building. Jews and Gentiles alike are being fitted together like a jigsaw puzzle. Each piece properly fits into another. And when all the pieces are connected, when the puzzle is complete, it has gone from several individual pieces to one perfect picture. Or in our case as Christians, we grow into a holy temple in the Lord. Think about that for a minute. We have in Christ the ability 
to put all of our differences aside and worship and serve God together. Sharing God with those who are outside. We receive and distribute God's blessings and we have become a holy temple in the Lord. One source said that thus the building for the nature of it is a temple, a holy temple. For the church is the place in which God has chosen to put his name And it becomes such a temple by grace and strength derived from himself in the Lord. Christians are the individual stones. Christians are the individual stones that when fitted together form the church on which Jesus Christ is the foundation. The word church actually means those who are called out. We are a collection of people whom God has redeemed and called to be with him. In this sense, there is only one church, and that is called the universal church, or the body of Christ. Notice Romans 12, 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Jesus Christ God in the flesh came into this world and showed us what it meant to be loved by God when he died on the cross in our place. And after that sacrificial death, he ascended into heaven and he continues to demonstrate the love of God in and through his church, in and through those who make up his church, Christians, those who have been fitted together to form his spiritual building. I read about a church that disappeared one brick at a time. Orthodox church officials in Russia discovered in 2008 that one of their church buildings had disappeared. Poof, gone. The 200-year-old building northeast of Moscow had gone unused for a decade. But the Orthodox church, which was experiencing growth, was considering reopening the church building. And that's when they discovered that their building wasn't there. They had to get to the bottom of this. After investigating the matter, the church officials did not blame aliens from outer space for the missing structure. Rather, they said the perpetrators were villagers from a nearby town who they said had taken and sold bricks from the building to a businessman. For each brick, the thieves received one ruble, about four cents. This two-story church facility did not go from being a building to not being a building in one bulldozing stroke. Rather, the bricks were apparently chiseled out one by one by lots of people. In the same way, some churches built not of bricks, but of living stones, that is, of Christians, are not reduced in one fatal stroke, but rather by Christians one by one, not choosing or choosing not to be involved, to stay home and watch a TV preacher, to read their Bible and pray, but not to mess with the organized church, to do their own spiritual thing. Each decision means one less living stone, In the end, the church intended by God to be the display of Christ's glory is chiseled away. Conversely, each person 
who gets involved helps to build a holy temple in the Lord made up of living bricks where Christ is glorified. But not only that, notice Ephesians 2.22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Again, in whom, in whom continues the point of verse 21, that it's in Jesus Christ, you also, or you too, which links Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you could say, in Jesus, Christians are being built together, which is the church, for what? Notice, for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Paul is still talking about building something here. He's emphasizing the building of the church with Christians in Jesus, who is the foundation for a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. One source said this, dwelling, a frequent term in the lexicon, denotes the divine resting place. It denotes the divine resting place either on earth or in heaven. Formerly, God's earthly abode was thought to be on Mount Zion and in the Jerusalem temple. Now he, God, makes his home in the church. All this is achieved not only by, but also in the spirit. God, according to this verse, uses his church, uses Christians as his resting place in the spirit. We as Christians have the indwelling spirit of God. Notice John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father will testify of me. God has given us his spirit so that as we move through this life, we will have plenty of help. We've already answered the question of who the Holy Spirit is. He's our helper sent by Jesus from God the Father. He's referred to as the Spirit of Truth, the third person in the Holy Trinity. Let's answer a couple of more questions. Disclaimer, we're not going to answer all the questions about the Holy Spirit, just a couple. He's very complicated. Number one, who exactly does the Spirit indwell? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He dwells in all believers. How does he help us? Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, he guides us in the way of truth. And when we walk in that truth, the results are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and he helps us. He counsels us in the truth, rewards our efforts, and he gifts us to help each other. Notice 1 Corinthians 12, 7. 
but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. As Christians, we are not perfect. We need help even after being saved. We need the help of God to keep us producing. And the Holy Spirit does a lot of pruning in our lives to make us better and better while here on earth. Much like a vineyard keeper prunes his vines. One vineyard owner explained why he prunes the vines. He said, why do we prune? Because if the vine is not pruned, it reverts very quickly to its wild nature. Climbing everywhere with its long skinny trunk and tiny scraggly branches of uneven grapes. Every year we need to assess the growth of the vines and decide whether to prune them back harder or to let them grow a bit bigger. Or return them to the same size and shape they were the year before. Part of the pleasure of pruning is that it is a pure craftsmanship like woodworking or ceramics. A blending of form and vision. Assessing the vine's growth and adjusting the pruning cuts to its individual differences. It's also a tactile relationship with nature. The living vines that could easily grow wild, guided by our hands to line up in vineyard rows, ready to bear another crop of wine grapes for our pleasure and nourishment. If we prune correctly, the vine will be balanced. That means it will grow just enough. If it grows too much, the resulting <clears throat> wines will be thin and simple. If it grows too little, the wine will be bitter and hard. The right amount of growth, what we call balanced growth, results in balanced wines that are delicious and show the environmental factors. The Holy Spirit is helping us to not revert back to our wild nature by pruning us with God's truth. So what have we learned? Remember, being a citizen means that we legally belong to and have all the rights and protections provided by God. When a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are born again. This means that they have denounced their previous citizenship to the world and its ruler, Satan have pledged their lives to God through Jesus Christ and have been given a certificate of citizenship to the kingdom of God. Notice John 3.3. 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the method by which we become citizens, and it is the only method to become a citizen. Unlike becoming a citizen of the United States where there are multiple ways to gain citizenship, that is not the case with heaven. There is only one way, and that way is to be born again. And so the simple application here is first and foremost to realize, first and foremost to realize that as Christians, we already have citizenship in heaven right now. There is nothing we can do to gain a certificate. Jesus Christ has already done it, and in so doing it has made us new creatures. We've been born again. Notice 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so we have to represent God's kingdom while we're on earth. We have to act and speak on behalf of God in our official capacity as Christians, as citizens of heaven. Because of Jesus Christ, we have a foundation with which to build. We have a foundation with which to build. If Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, as the Bible says he is, the one who sets the path for building and has himself already laid the foundation through his prophets and apostles, and we as Christians are the building materials that are used to build the church, then in order to be successful, we need to understand the blueprints. We need to know what Jesus wants his church to look like, what the rooms should look like, and what the color of the walls should look like. And so how do we do that? Application 2, 1 Peter 2.6. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Notice, it is contained in the scripture. In order to understand what God is doing in and through the church, we have to read and understand the blueprints which are contained in the scriptures. We as members of the church have to read our Bibles if we want to know anything about God, including how to continue building his church on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. Quick example. Let's say you have the desire to become a church leader, maybe an elder. What does that involve? Well, let's look at the Bible. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 6. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop or elder, he desires a good work. A bishop or elder then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission and all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, Lest being puffed up with pride, he falls into the same condemnation as the devil. The Bible will answer all the necessary questions regarding the church, and so we must use it. Principle three because of Jesus Christ, we are united as his church. We are united as his church. Remember, Jesus is the one who does the fitting. He's the one who puts the blocks together that make up the church. And he's the one who unites us, putting us together like puzzle pieces to complete the picture. So how can we apply this principle to our lives? And the simple answer is that you have to be here. You have to be here. 
How can you be used if you're not present? Have you ever started to put a puzzle together only to realize that you were missing pieces? It hurts the overall picture when pieces are missing. God has gifted each one of us with so many things in so many ways that we can help each other, we can help the church. And when we are engaged, when we are being fitted together with others, the whole thing just works. Notice Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need to be in church, and we need to participate in church. Principle four, because of Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit as our helper. We have the Holy Spirit as our helper. We have been blessed as Christians with the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us. And he helps us along our paths and provides the truth that will enable us to be the most effective Christians that we can be. And so what do we need to do? Well, we need to be sensitive to the Spirit's promptings. So that we can take things out of our lives that should not be there. And we can add the things that should be there. Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We have been given one of the most amazing gifts. And that is the Holy Spirit who has dedicated himself to helping and counseling us. And we need to pay attention to his pruning. Because of Jesus Christ, we are citizens of heaven right now. Because of Jesus Christ, we have a strong foundation with which to build on. Because of Jesus Christ, we are united as his church. And because of Jesus Christ, we have all the help that we need. I read about the country of the blind, which said this. English author... H.G. Wells, famous for science fiction novels like The Time Machine, The Invisible Man, and The War of the Worlds, once wrote a short story called The Country of the Blind. It's about an inaccessible, luxurious valley in Ecuador where due to a strange disease, everyone is blind. After 15 generations of the blindness, there was no recollection of sight or color or the outside world at all. Finally, a man from the outside, a man who could see, literally fell into their midst. He had fallen off a high cliff and survived, only to stumble into their forgotten country. When he realized that everyone was blind, he remembered the old age adage, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Wells writes, he tried it first on several occasions to tell them of sight. Look, you here, you people, he said. There are things you don't understand in me. Once or twice, one or two of them attended to him. They sat with faces downcast and ears turned toward him. And he did his best to tell them what he, what he was to see. But they never believed him. They thought he was crazy. The man fell in love with the girl there. And the girl's father, Jacob, went to talk to a doctor about him. 
A conversation ensued. The doctor said, I think I may have some reasonable ways to cure this man completely. All that we need to do is a simple and easy surgical operation, namely to remove these irritant bodies, his eyes, and then he will be sane. They asked, then he will be perfectly sane and a quite admirable citizen. Thank heavens for science, said old Jacob. Wells goes on to point out that the man would not be allowed to marry Jacob's daughter unless he submitted to an operation that would blind him. So what would the man do? Wells writes, he had fully meant to go to a lonely place where the meadows were beautiful, with beautiful plants, and there remain until the hour of his sacrifice should come. But as he walked, he lifted up his eyes and saw the morning, the morning like an angel in golden armor, marching down the steeps. It seemed to him that before the splendor, he and this blind world in the valley and his love and all were no more than a pit of sin. And the man could see escaped the country of the blind with his life. That is where we live, in the country of the blind, that is proud of its science, sure of its health, oblivious to the light. It's not only pitiful, it's deadly. Jesus said men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Jesus had his own name for the country of the blind. He called it the world. In his last words to his disciples before going to the cross, Jesus warned them of the hostility they would face just as he had in this blind world. Yet rather than pulling his beloved followers out of this blind and hostile world, Jesus Christ sent his own spirit into his people to convince this world of its blindness. We have the opportunity in this fallen world to share Jesus Christ and contribute to the building of his church as was done for us. And we should take great pride in the fact that despite our shortcomings, because of Jesus Christ, we are citizens of heaven. And despite this wicked world, we have a strong foundation in Jesus Christ. Despite our differences, we are united in God and his holy word. And despite our lack of motivation, we have a mighty helper, the Holy Spirit, who is committed to doing it with us. God is good, and he has not lost control. Let's pray. Holy Father, God in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness and kindness. Thank you so much for your word. It is my privilege to learn all I can about you and to apply it to my life. And I pray the same for all of us here. I pray that each one of us would be inspired by what you've done for us and that a new conviction would open up in our hearts that would propel us into this world, into this darkness, and to share your light with all that we encounter. I'm so grateful, Father, that you have sent the Apostle Paul with these words and that they have made it through history to us today. And I pray that we would each take them very seriously and that we would take our rightful place as citizens of heaven, even here in this place. Thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.